Thank you, John. Good morning, everyone. It's always encouraging when you're doing a series of any kind when the people come back the next day. Um, so thank you for joining us. If it's your first time, it's good to have you with us too. And uh, wonderful to hear of the blessing that last night was. I'm sorry I wasn't here. It sounded like an, an, an incredible time. So praise God for that. And we're looking, <coughs> excuse me, we're looking forward to what God's going to do today. We're turning to Matthew chapter 3. It's going to be the portion in chapter 4 of Matthew that we're, we're in again tomorrow. Um, and uh, just in case you weren't here yesterday, um, Gather to Go is the theme that you have chosen um, as a movement for this conference. And I felt the Lord in particular leading me to how Jesus himself gathered himself and was gathered by Father God to prepare for his great mission of going uh, to this earth to be our Savior. And we talked yesterday about how Jesus' preparation for ministry involved moving from obscurity to prominence. And we saw the importance of obscurity. We often reject it. We don't want it. And we feel that if God has called us, he's going to set us on a stage somewhere, shine a light on us. Now, that might be the case at some stage. But that certainly was not the majority of the experience of the Lord Jesus in his life for 30 years. He was hidden. And I was talking about the importance of the work that God does that we often resist, of hiddenness, of obscurity, of being overlooked, ignored, even slighted at times. Then we looked at his baptism and how a baptism is important. I'll not go into that anymore. But also from his baptism, we infer that this was a dedication of himself in holiness to God and the importance of holiness, the importance of obedience to fulfill all righteousness. It was important, even though he had no sin, that he did the right thing. And whatever God calls us to do, we need to do it and ask no questions. And then the vitality of the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. And he without sin needed that baptism, not only in water, but baptism of the Holy Spirit. And praise God for what was going on last night in our gathering. But this morning we're going to take a step further, still in the baptism of Jesus, but we're looking at how his preparation for ministry and for going meant that he needed to learn to minister from identity rather than for identity. Do you understand? So let's read this portion of Scripture again together. Chapter 3, verse 13 of Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or remaining upon him. This is where we're going to focus this morning. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 17, the heavens opened and there was a voice suddenly coming from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, some translations rendered, in whom is all my delight. One of the key questions for us to ask before we engage in ministry or mission, and I'm not talking about 
um, full-time ministry in the sense a pastor might be or an evangelist or a missionary on the field. I'm talking about all of us as we seek to serve the Lord and preaching the gospel. One of the most important questions we need to ask is, are we serving for identity? Or are we ministering from identity? Now, as a society and a culture, we are very much conditioned to derive our sense of worth and identity from what we do. We are doers. And uh, you may have noticed that the first time we usually meet someone, often the next question after what's your name or where do you live is what do you do? And social media has created such an appetite to know what people are doing. You know, have you ever had the thought, I wonder what so-and-so is doing right now? And then you look them up on whatever social platform you use. And there are posts everywhere of the most bizarre things that people are doing. And it could range from performing to an audience of 60,000 spectators to having a flat white in Starbucks. And uh, I must be becoming the dinosaur that my children say that I am, but I just think, who cares? And yet, obviously, we do care because there's such a demand to know what people are doing. And as human beings, we are obsessed with doing. It's not just doing. It's, it's about performance, achievement, accolades, success. And the strange irony of the Christian life is that the very thing that will augment effective ministry the most is actually not what you do. It's who you are. And in fact, God is far more interested in who you are. It's far more important that you know who you are to him than anything that you will ever do in your life. I don't care what it is. Unfortunately, I think that often in Christian service, especially in professional ministry, we've created an economy of performance and achievement. And it differs little, I think, at times from, from the corporate sphere or the business rat race. You know, survival of the fittest, dog eat dog. My ministry is bigger than yours. My social media following is broader. And no doubt as we touched upon it a little bit yesterday morning, the social media revolution and the, the Christian popular, popular celebrity culture has launched vain glory into the stratosphere. And the commodities of church and business may look different, but essentially they can often be the same. So we talk in terms of congregants rather than shareholders and fans. We talk of souls won rather than customers bought. We can aspire to titles and office rather than promotion. And we can crave blessing, anointing, and influence rather than climbing the career ladder. But both of those can be intoxicating and actually can be toxic. Jesus said... That which is of the flesh is flesh. Flesh breeds flesh. But you know something? Fre flesh also kills flesh. 
And if we operate in the flesh in Christian service, that's when we get burnt out. I don't know whether you've ever been burnt out. I've been very close to it, if not in the middle of it. But listen, here's a revelation for you that came to me the hard way. When you, you will never be crushed by what doesn't define you. Listen to that. You will never be crushed by what you won't let define you. So if you're not defined by what you do, you'll never be crushed by it. But the problem is we so often see our identity joined with our performance or our achievements in ministry, whatever that might look like. And the religious ecosystem that we've often created around us and built in our churches resembles at times very little of the primitive disciple-making movement and worship communities in the New Testament. We have to be real. Now, as we gather to go, what I want to say to you today is it's vital that we ask the question, are we serving for identity or from identity? And let's talk about identity for a few moments. In the beginning, God, of course, created us knowing that a void of identity would would make there to be an empty humanity deep within our souls. And that's why we read in Genesis 1, 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So there is this creative principle that we'll never truly know who we are until we know who God is as our father. And this is the reason why we live in in an age of identity crisis should be no surprise when we consider that we are in the fatherless generation. We also live in our digital age in the moment of identity theft that is prevalent all around us. Fraudulent practices of using another person's information to access funds uh, or information on them. It's become widespread and essentially is an attack on someone's identity, identity theft. Of course, there's identity politics, which is in the ascendancy. And that is, if you don't already know, politics that is based on your race, your religion, your social class, or your sexual expression. The Bible teaches us that the greatest identity thief caused the greatest identity crisis. Satan wants mankind to identify in every way possible, except by our creative identity made in the image of God. And you see, when we don't find our identity as children of God and God as our Abba Father, we then will have a false identity. That will make us feel insignificant. And in fact, we will effectively behave as orphans. Do you remember the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son? I don't like calling it the prodigal parable because it's actually about two sons, but really it's about the father. It's about Abba Father's heart. But if I can skip through the young father for a moment and just get to the, the elder brother, this was the punchline of this story that was like an uppercut to the Pharisees who were questioning why Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. That's what it says at the very beginning of chapter 15. And he points out to them that they, in fact, are these elder brothers, these self-righteous, legalistic Pharisees that think they can get to know God through what they do. You understand? 
And we read in Luke 15, you might want to turn to it, verse 29 through to 31, that it says that when the elder brother heard there was a party going on because the young fellow had come home and the father had killed the father calf, he answered and said to his father, though these many years I've been serving you, I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, the father says to the elder brother, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. And so what we've got is a young man or an older brother who is angry. It says that he was angry and he wouldn't go into the party. And he was entitled. He had a sense of, I deserve what you're doing for him, but you've never done it for me. And can I just say before I go on any further without elaborating, that the rights agenda that we have in our modern society, and sadly that a lot of the church is buying into, actually comes from an orphaned humanity. When we start demanding our rights, we're showing our orphan heart. Because usually when you demand rights, you're infringing on someone else's rights. We could talk about that, but we'll not. But what I want you to understand is that's not a godly behavior. He was also a separatist. I will not go into where that younger brother is. And he doesn't even call him his his brother. He says, that son of yours. (laughs) That speaks a lot, doesn't it, to Christians who won't call all their brothers brothers and won't enter into fellowship with them. He was a haughty separatist. And he also had sibling rivalry. He was exhibiting competition. And the tragedy is, and we see it right across the spectrum of, of Christian expression, but the tragedy is that this older brother, who the father said, everything I had was yours, and I've been told by Jewish people that actually the elder brother got a, a bigger cut of the inheritance than the younger guy did. I always thought they divided them two equally, but I've been told that the elder brother would have got more. But the father says, so everything I had is yours now, and yet he's living like an orphan. He's actually effectively living like a slave would to a master, like an employee would to an employer, certainly not like a son would to a father. All these many years I've served you, I've done everything you told me, and yet you never gave me anything. And many of us relate to God like that. I wonder, is that you here today? And he spent all the time in father's house. He never left father's house. He didn't go into the far country and waste all his inheritance on prodigal living with alcohol and prostitutes like the young guy did. But he lived all his life in father's house, but he'd never seen into father's heart. And so he had false identity. He was feeling insignificant. And the problem is, as an orphan, he didn't realize what he already had. And there's an elder brother in all of us, okay? We've got to put our hands up here. There's an orphan heart in all of us because we're all born in Adam. We've all got it. And by the way, when I talk about sonship here today, um, sonship obviously was male in Bible times because... um, 
only sons inherit it. And so when we're talking about spiritual sonship, we're not excluding females. Spiritual New Testament sonship includes male and female. So if I refer to that, I'm including everybody. But I want to ask you here today, as you seek to go forth and, and serve God in the Great Commission as a movement, but as individuals, are you doing it from a knowledge that we are God's beloved sons and daughters in whom he is well pleased and we go in confidence serving from identity rather than trying to, to serve for identity? And many of us, I fear, are serving and laboring out of orphan hearts. I'm going to put on the screen a table, and you'll get a handout of this on your way out so as you can study it in more detail, of a comparison from Shiloh Ministries, Shiloh House Ministries, of the orphan heart with the heart of a son or, or a daughter. Just look at this. Ask yourself, um, does this ring true for any of you? When it comes to the image of God, an orphan heart sees God as a master, just like the elder brother, but a son or a daughter sees God as a loving father, the Abba Father. As far as dependency goes, the orphan is more independent, self-reliant, whereas the son or daughter is interdependent and acknowledges their need. In theology, the orphan lives by the, the, the love of the law, whereas the child lives by the law of love. Security-wise, orphans are insecure, they lack peace, but the child of God rests and is at peace. The orphan strives for praise and approval and acceptance of man, but the son or daughter is totally accepted in God's love as their father and justified by grace. The motivation for service for an orphan is the need for personal achievement as you seek to impress God and others, or either they have no motivation at all. But the, the child serves out of pleasure and delight. It's the same with, with the disciplines not out of a duty or an earning favor. And then the motive for purity, to be holy, for the orphan it's a must be holy to have God's favor, thus increasing a sense of shame and guilt. But the child wants to be holy because of who they are now. They don't want anything to hinder their intimate relationship between a father and a child. As far as self-image goes, the orphan has a lot of self-rejection from comparing themselves with others. But the child has a positive and affirming self-image because they know who they are as a child valued by God. What's the source of comfort for an orphan? Unfortunately, this is the reason why Christians get caught up in so much sin, is they seek comfort in counterfeit affections, in addictions, in compulsions, in escapism, busyness, hyper-religious activity. They're trying to fill this void that only Father's love can fill, whereas the child seeks times of quietness, solitude, resting in the Father's presence and love because they know they're already accepted. Higher peer relationships. Well, with the orphan, there's a lot of competition, rivalry, jealousy towards others, especially if they're successful or in a position. But with the child, there's humility, unity as you value others and are able to rejoice in their blessing and success. How do we handle others' faults? The orphan falls into accusation, exposure, judgment, criticism in order to make themselves look good by making others look bad. But the child of God, love covers a multitude of sins for them as they seek to restore others in a spirit of love and gentleness. 
What's an orphan's view of authority? They see authority as a source of pain, distrustful towards authority, and they lack a heart of uh, an attitude of submission. Whereas the child is respectful, honoring, and, and, and they see authority figures as ministers of God for good in their life. What's the view of admonition or correction? <laughs> an orphan finds it difficult to receive admonition because they, they have to feel that they're right all the time and they easily get their feelings hurt when any error is pointed out. Whereas the child of God receives admonition as a blessing, as a need in their life because we've all got faults and weaknesses that need to be exposed and put to death. What about the expression of love? An orphan is guarded Closed, unconditional where love is concerned. Love is based upon performance as you seek to get your own needs met. Whereas a child is open, patient, and affectionate as you, you lay your life and agendas down in order to meet the needs of others. It's not about you. What about the sense of God's presence? For the orphan, it's conditional. It's distant. I have to jump through hoops to get into God's presence. But for the child, it's already there. It's close. It's intimate. He dwells within me. The spirit of adoption is within me, rising up, crying, Abba, Father. What kind of condition does the orphan find themselves in? In bondage, whereas the child of God is in liberty and freedom. The orphan has a position, feeling like a servant or a slave, but obviously the child is a son or a daughter. And as far as vision goes, the orphan's vision is spiritual ambition, an earnest desire for some spiritual achievement and distinction, and the willingness to, to strive for it, and a desire to be seen and counted among the mature. Whereas for the child, it's a daily experience of father's unconditional love and acceptance. And then being sent out of that love as a representative of his love in the family of God to others in the world. What's the future for the orphan? i got to fight for what I get. And we have spiritualized that in so many arenas of spiritual warfare and prayer. And I believe, obviously, in those things. But so much of it is out of an orphan heart. Whereas the son or the daughter realizes, I have been given an inheritance. I am an, I'm an heir of God as my father. And I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. What that means is, whatever is in the will for Jesus from the father, I get. Whatever Jesus gets, I get. You can take a copy of that home. Does it speak to you? Now God, as I said yesterday, he's not looking for perfection. But he's looking for a recognition of how prone we are to pride, to orphanhood, and to ministering out of a need for deep identity that only he can meet as Father God. Now, some orphans, as we saw from that list, are apathetic. They kind of give up and they throw the towel in. I can't do this. But then there are other orphans who are very active. And out of a sense of duty and serving God, they want to earn favor with God and derive identity. And Jack and Trish Frost put it like this. These often evaluate how spiritual they and others are by how much time they spend each day in prayer by much of the Bible they're reading, by how often they fast. And many orphans quote the Bible extensively and they pray for hours at a time, yet they have never known a personal, affectionate love and acceptance from God. And Jesus chastened, they go on to say, Jesus chastened the Pharisees in John 
Uh, chapter 5 and verse 39 and 40, the NASB says, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. Jesus came that we would have abundant, overflowing life. But if you're stuck in this spiritual hamster wheel of performance and doing to achieve some kind of brownie points with God, you must admit you're not living life. It's miserable. Why Christians can be so miserable. Do you know any? No, don't, don't go there. There's a Trappist monk uh, who used to live in the United States by the name of Thomas Merton. <coughs> And he said something like this on one occasion. I heard him quoted secondhand. He said, when you were in the world, your objective was to drink your mates under the table. And then you become a monk. And now the goal is to fast and pray them under the table. I think about that. Many who are serving the Lord, and I've done this, okay, so hands up are serving out of an orphan heart and they're in the pulpits and they're in office and they're in ministries and they're on the mission field. But listen, you can never be a father or a mother until you've learned to be a son and a daughter. And we don't need I believe in pastors, I believe in prophets and evangelists, teachers, apostles, I believe those things, deacons. But what we need more of is fathers and mothers. Look at verse 16 and 17. This, this initiation experience, as it were, for Jesus going into ministry, it involved baptism, it involved the Holy Spirit anointing, but look, it involved the heavens cleaving and the voice of Almighty God speaking and saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. My delight is fully in Him. And many of us want the baptism of power. And maybe we even ran to the altar last night for it. We want to serve the Lord. We want to see revival. We want to see the kingdom of God expanded. But we also, like Jesus, need to hear the voice of the Father speaking his belovedness into our heart. And you see, if that doesn't happen, you know it will happen. The power will destroy us. And the position will ruin you. Jack Frost tells the story of a man who, who bought an old antique wooden 18-foot speedboat. And he was a prosperous member of the Yacht Club, not in Hollywood, uh, over in the States. And uh, he wanted to showcase this boat before his, his boating pals. And uh, he soon took the old teak boat to the boatyard and asked them to spare no expense in restoring it to him in condition. It took months, painstaking labor, to refinish all the wood and install new fittings, chrome seats, cushions. He removed the 100 horsepower inboard engine and installed a new 400 horsepower engine. And upon completion, it appeared to be a work of art. And the man just couldn't wait. He was busting to show it off to all his friends at the Yacht Club. But in addition to the refurbished boat, he bought a brand new trailer 
to transport the boat and a brand new jeep to tow the trailer. And then on a Saturday of his choosing, during the middle of lunch hour, when all his buddies were eating at the Yacht Club restaurant, the man drove with his son to launch the ramp and lower the priceless antique into the water in front of all his friends. And a number of his cronies came um, over with him, and they actually pleaded with him in envy that they should take a trail run out the river. But the man reserved that privilege for he and his son, and he took off from the yacht club in, in the jeep. Full throttle. He did a few spins back and forth to let them all see the prize that he was gloating over. And then he came racing back to the dock in front of the restaurant. And at the last second, he threw the gear into reverse at high RPMs, put it into reverse, easing the boat to a stop. However, the problem was the force of revving up so much horsepower that 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 boat was not used to created a loud thud. All of a sudden, water started pouring into the stern of the rear of the boat that was just being launched into the river. Screaming at his son and his friends to help. Bail out all the water. Get help. He ran into his jeep before the trailer sank along with the boat. And upon pulling the boat out of the water and inspecting the bottom of it, they found a huge hole in the keel of the stern. The exterior of the 50-year-old wood was varnished and, and looked looked new, but the wood on the inside, this was the problem, the wood on the inside of the boat had dry rotted over the years and it gave way to the pressure of the high-powered engine. He was utterly humiliated in front of his peers and the man's anger towards those workers in the boatyard started to rise up and exploded with verbal curses and accusations. He was enraged. He commanded his son back into the jeep, sped off toward the boatyard to give them a piece of his mind. In the meantime, blinded by his temper and embarrassment, he had forgotten to strap the boat down to the trailer. And as he was speeding down the road, a person in the car in front of him suddenly slammed on their brakes. And when the man slammed on his, the boat slid forward off the trailer, went through the back window of the new Jeep, and the bow of the boat was left sitting in the driver's seat. The boat was destroyed. The new boat trailer was mangled. The new Jeep had sustained thousands of dollars worth of damages. And what is the moral of the story? If you've not dealt with the dry rot in your life and God turns up the power, you're in danger of blowing your rear end off. (laughs) Do you feel like the bottom of your boat has fallen out? Do you? And all this talk about gathered to go, you don't have a motivation to go. What are you going to go to take to them? Because you feel empty. You feel like the bottom of your world has fallen out. And maybe it is because for years you've been operating in some form of the power of God, maybe sometimes in the flesh, but you have not been aware of your acceptance and your belonging as a child, a son or daughter of God. And so that has not been the fuel of your experience of a relationship with your Abba Father. And so the bottom falls out of your world. And I didn't like it when it happened to me, and it's happened a couple of times, but I thank God for it. Because then you learn what it's really all about. 
In Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, Jesus appointed 12, listen, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Do you see the order? He called the 12 that they would first be with him, gathered with him for three and a half years, and then he sent them out to preach. The greatest work that was ever accomplished, the greatest act of service that was ever bestowed was achieved only on the basis of true identity. Now I want you to see this. Turn with me to John chapter 13, please. John chapter 13. I assume you're all looking it up on your phone because I don't hear a lot of rustling. It's always good hearing rustling when there's an offering in particular. John 13. Now listen to this. Now before, verse 1, the feast of the Passover was over, when Jesus knew, this is very important to know, they sang beforehand, before I got up, about knowing who we are. Who God says we are. It's vital. Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew what Father was up to because he only ever did what he saw the Father do. And that his hour had come that he should depart from the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We could spend a lot of time there. Isn't that beautiful? He loved us unto the end. Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now watch this. Jesus knowing... That the Father had given all things into his hands. And knowing that he had come from God and was going to God. He rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, girded himself. After that he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now listen. What Jesus was doing when he, he took off his garment, he was depicting in type what he had done when he came from the right hand of God in heaven and took off his glory as a son of God and came in the humiliation of human flesh and put a towel on as a servant, obedient even unto death. And the pouring of the water into the basin, I believe, prefigures the pouring of his blood out for us that we might be washed by him. And this is the shadow of the cross. Just the night before Jesus is crucified and he's about to be betrayed. And the shadow of the cross, Jesus is submitting to his his life's mission. But he can do it because he knows something. He knows who he is. Do you see that verse 3? Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. The Father had given him everything as his son. And the the father told him, you're going to do this, but I'm going to bring you back to me. And listen, you can do anything if you know who you are. You don't see orphanhood at the cross. You don't see orphanhood at the cross. Jesus was the son that he was because of the father he had. And the cross was only possible because of Jesus knowing who he was. Do you see it? Paul's prayer for the Ephesian saints, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Could you do with that? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, four-dimensional love, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, and God is love, to be filled with his love. And listen, you can't be filled with his love through doing. You can only be filled with his love through knowing who you are. And it's only going to take the world for Jesus with an army of people like the Son of God who know who they are. Not orphans. Everything needs to be rooted and grounded in love. That's why Jude said, as we approach the end of the age, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's why you've got in 1 Corinthians 13, and you Pentecostals know it well, in between chapter 12 about the gifts and chapter 14 about the gifts. He alludes to the gifts when this great purple passage on love where he says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, if I prophesy, if I have knowledge and wisdom, revelatory gifts, if I have mountain-moving faith, if I give my body to martyrdom, if, I, if I'm sacrificially charitable, Without the love of God, it's a big fat zero. And listen, it's not without love. It's not without charity. It's agape. It's without the love of God. That's a supernatural love and you can only know it when you know God is your father and you're his kid. And evangelical Protestantism in particular in, in, in Ireland and also Catholicism and all shades in the spectrum have suffered from not knowing. This is why Jesus came, that we might know the Father. That's what the gospel is all about. And in knowing the Father, you know who you are. And you can, you can have all the obedience you like, and it's good. And you can have all the holiness you like. And you can have all the anointing you like, but if you don't hear the Father say, you're my beloved, you'll not go as effectively, powerfully into the world. You'll actually make disciples of what you are. Orphans. It's time to own your belovedness. The truth is, as Sarah said, you've owned your fear and your own self-loathing. You've owned the voices inside of your head, the shame and reproach of your failure. You've owned your past and how it's defined you. You've owned everything everybody else says. Well, it's time to hear what your Father has spoken. It's time to own your belovedness. He says, you're mine. I smiled when I made you. I find you beautiful in every way. My love for you is fierce and unending. I'll come to find you whatever it takes. My beloved, you've owned the mess you see in the mirror. 
You've owned the lies that you're just not enough. You've been so blinded by all you're comparing. It's time to own your belovedness. I hope you can sense the favor of the Father in the gathering this morning. He says, I am pleased with you, not because you're anything special, but because you're in Jesus. You are special, of course. You're not perfect. Jesus brings you into fellowship with the perfect Father through his death, through his resurrection, through faith in him. And we're trying to strive for that, and we've got it. We've got it. But some of you are not living in that, and some of you are not serving from that. You need to pause. Like Godfrey Bertle said, you need to stop at the cross. Stop at the cross and see the love of the Father. I think we're going to be laid in some worship, but I want to just pray with you now. Lord, I pray that your spirit of adoption, which is the spirit of Jesus that rises up and cries, Abba, Daddy, Papa, Dada, from our hearts, that that spirit would now rise up within people's breaths now. And for the first time, they've maybe been born again for years, but for the first time they've discovered what it is to be a son, to be a daughter, to relate to you as our Father in heaven. Lord, would you heal wounds from earthly fathers and earthly mothers and from even father figures in the church that have wounded others, authority figures, teachers, We've had those hurts. Lord, would you begin to heal those wounds? But would you pour in your agape love? Oh, Lord. We just want to be drunk on your love. We just want to be intoxicated by your love. We want to go on your love. That's the fuel we want to operate. Not the flesh, not performance, not trying to achieve, not competitiveness, not one-upmanship. We want to go rooted and grounded in your love. Give us a baptism of the love of God like never before, Father. In the mighty name of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. Amen.